Welcome to another episode of Keeping It 1600. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, and today we have uh, our friend and the co-host of the Today Show, Savannah Guthrie. Very excited to have Savannah on. Covered the White House, good friend of ours, very, very, very smart person. Uh, excited to talk to her. Yes. Um, we also want to give a shout out before we start to uh, the upcoming premiere of After the Throne, uh, which is uh, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan's show, uh, part of the Ringer Network. Uh, it's going to be on HBO now, HBO Go, both probably, uh, uh, right after Game of the Thrones. It's on Monday. Um, so I'm excited for that. I'm very excited yeah. for Game of Thrones on Sunday. Yeah, couldn't be more excited. Uh, huge, um, long-time Andy and Chris podcast fan. Um and lost my podcast virginity on their old Grantland podcast back in the day. So Whoa. they started this. So we're very excited for them. Just don't tell us the details of your podcast virginity story. But <laughs> it's, it's all, it still exists on the internet, so don't you worry. <laughs> okay, so we had a uh, big primary this week in New York. And uh, this was a very Empire Strikes Back primary in that uh, <laughs> Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, massive victories in New York. Expected, but probably, at least in Trump's case, it was a bigger victory than expected, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it, this is also a reminder that, as uh, as one co-host of this pod yourself tweeted, <laughs> uh, huge win for big loss for momentum, huge win for demographics. It's sort of evidence that these states perform like they're supposed to. Trump was supposed to do well here; he did well here. Clinton has did well here; was supposed to do well here, and it. In all the noise of the last two weeks about, you know, various gaffes and the size of Bernie Sanders rallies were sort of irrelevant to the very hard data-driven facts of politics, which is they should do well in these states, and they did very well in these states. And it's a, because it's a state with a lot of delegates, it's a huge win for both of them and their path to the nomination. Yeah. I mean, he, here's one thing I think Trump did well between Wisconsin and New York, right? Like, we know, and probably the Trump campaign or like Paul Manafort or some smart person on that campaign <laughs> knows that, knew that they were going to win big in New York, even though they lost big in Wisconsin because of demographics, right? And they knew that the momentum and the narrative, you know, didn't really mean anything for their results. But they know that the media can't resist a narrative and can't resist the momentum narrative. So they use that period to say that they were retooling and having a staff shake up and doing all the things you're supposed to do when you're down and out to kind of regain the momentum so that when they won New York, like they thought that they were going to do, I think they also benefited from the narrative like, oh, well, he helped turn his campaign around and look at the big victory he got, which you and I and a lot of people know is complete bullshit, but, you know, I think it works with a lot of the media. Yeah, Trump, under, obviously, as we've seen throughout this cycle, Trump understands how the media works, and he knows that, and this is a tried-and-true uh, tactic and sort of a fake one, is you sometimes have to hit a, hit a quote-unquote reset button. So it's a staff <laughs> shake-up or a change. You have some kinds so of the press can say, see, Candidate X has learned the lessons that we've been preaching to him on cable news for weeks now, and we will give them the benefit of the doubt. And so putting in Paul Manafort um, and Rick Wiley and sort of all these leaked stories about the new structure and the neutering of Corey Lewandowski or whatever else um, played right into the media fans. And, but the other thing is 
if Trump did not hire Paul Manafort, did not hire Rick Wiley, fired his entire campaign and had it be run by um, like a gaggle of monkeys, he would have done just as well in New York. <laughs> and some, some would argue that's, that's a mild step, the mild step up from his previous campaign staff. But he may have done better. Is, he was, right, maybe <laughs> it may have been better, uh, more respectful to reporters, most likely. Um, his he was going to do this well no matter what. But we're, I do think most. St- Staff shakeups are sort of bullshit. Yes. Um, this one, I just matter a little bit in the sense that Trump had clearly gotten um, outwitted by Cruz in the battle for delegates um, at these state conventions, and I think having um, you know some more seasoned staff um, will help with that. So yeah. it, you know, if he's on the, if this is going to a contested convention, um, having some folks who know what they're doing is good. I mean, there's a pretty great story in one of the papers uh, this week about how the last real contested convention was 1976. So there were all these people in their like late 80s who were advising their campaign, or these campaigns because they're the only people on the Republican side anyone can find who knows how to deal with a contested convention. Yeah, Which I is sort of how Paul Manafort ended. Paul Manafort, there's like an 88-year-old guy who's advising Kasich. We found <laughs> so, the only guy who was alive at the convention in 76. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he can't tell you what year it is right now, but yeah, he's helping them out. <laughs> so yeah, so they're bringing on, they brought on Manafort and Wiley to do this stuff. And uh, I also read in the Wall Street Journal that he is bringing on a speechwriter, which means that this is my last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Can you imagine? You, you'll just be a future guest when Tate, Tate and I host this going forward. <laughs> I can't wait to see who that speechwriter is. And, and he's using prompters. The much maligned, <laughs> the much maligned prompter uh, is going to be would, part of Trump's repertoire now. Well, I mean, basically, once you've done that, you might as well be Obama. But (laughs) I was watching, in preparation for our interview with Savannah Guthrie, I was watching uh, the Today Show this morning because they had a Trump town hall on. And before that, uh, Peter Alexander, one of the reporters, was doing a report on Trump's new moves. (laughs) It says he's been – he is doing a speech in the next week or so on foreign policy and the economy. He's been practicing on a teleprompter. And he plans to hire a speechwriter. It's like, I think you're doing that out of order. <laughs> so who wrote the speech? What is on the teleprompter? A little late for a round of edits. Um, yeah, exactly. No, so I, I think that – so Trump was projected by the smart delegate projection people – 538, redistrict, all these places, to um, to get around 71 delegates in New York. He end, He's going to end up with 89, 90. They still have a few left to allocate. Um, I don't know. I, I, I Obviously, it was a predicted win, but I also sort of think that he is back in the driver's seat here. I think we can, we're going to have a primary on Tuesday that he's going to do very well in uh, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Delaware. Those are also going to be good states for him. And then he's going to hit a bit of a rough patch again. Uh, Indiana is going to be tough for him. And then there's a couple Western states without too many delegates that I think Cruz probably wins. Um, you know, and then we get to California. But I don't know. It just it, it's not just a momentum thing. But I, I, I sort of think I think we I think we discount what what it's going to look like if he finishes on June 7th a few, you know, 50, 60, 70, even 100 delegates short of 1237, but with a big enough distance from Cruz in the popular vote, in the amount of delegates, and if he doesn't do anything too crazy, which is a huge if, <laughs> um, I think it's very, it's it's much harder at that point for the party to say, no, we're denying you the nomination. 
like anyone who's listened to our half dozen episodes or so know that we kind of go back and forth on All the, the capacity of the Republican Party that's, every week's different. That's our, that's our privilege as <laughs> pundits in our new pundit yeah, and life. We also have very few sources on the Republican side, so we're mainly just responding, reacting to what we read in the papers mm-hmm. and on Twitter. But it does, I feel, I agree with you, it feels like he, like the party's starting to come around to the idea that if he's close, it's pretty hard to take it away from him. And the fact that the person you would have to give it to is Ted Cruz, who they hate almost as much, makes it that much harder. Like, I would feel a little bit differently if, it, if Rubio or Kasich or even Jeb Bush or someone were right, you know, were in Cruz's position. You know, you might feel like, well, this person, we're willing to take on whatever the pain of dumping Trump is in, for someone we think can actually win. You know, or like, so, but yeah. for Cruz, it's just like, I mean, if Cruz was, if Trump had never run and Cruz was in this position, the party, there would be a bunch of people, all the same people, in fact, um, would be the leaders of the hashtag never Cruz movement. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it, like, it's, uh, you know, they're yeah. sort of damned if they do, damned if they don't. I mean, my belief is if, if Trump acts like he has in these last two weeks, um, and doesn't and doesn't say and, you know if if he acts like that and he's disciplined, I think he gets it. I think the party doesn't take it away from him. If, however, he has another week where he is like saying crazy shit about women and his staff is beating up reporters and all the other awful <laughs> stuff that happened that a couple of weeks ago, then I think it becomes much easier for them to take it away. Right? Like there does need to be a change in the storyline for something that Trump does that's that's crazy for them to to do this. Um, well, I also and I, I, they also took a poll that it's something like 70 percent of Republicans now think that the person who won the most popular votes and won the most delegates, the candidate who won who won those things, um, should get the nomination. So I think it's very tough to take it away unless he acts like a lunatic, you know? Right, which which is always possible. I do think his strategy, he's running a two-tiered strategy right now, which is two tiers more strategy than he's run for much of this campaign. <laughs> but is he, you know, he has Paul Manafort and Rick Wally and these guys going out. They're meeting with the, they met with the RNC. They are, um, you know, working the delegate game. At the same time, Trump is going out publicly and trying to delegitimize a process that takes it away from him. Yes. Which I think is smart because it Very raises smart. the stakes for his people and makes it, if his people believe, and they will believe, I think, if he keeps saying this, that, and it's not a hard argument to make, that the person who gets the most votes and the most delegates should be the nominee, and anything else is corruption, thievery, et cetera. You know, that gives him so much leverage in a contested convention if, you know, 40 percent of, you know, of all of his supporters, which make up, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45 percent, depending on the day in the Republican primary electorate, are going to walk away. That's death for not just the Republican nominee, but for the House and the Senate, too, because these people will stay home. It's, you know, because yeah. what will get them to the polls is Trump. It's not like they're super excited about voting for Steve Scalise or something. <laughs> so, if you're uh, if you're one of our friends in the hashtag Never Trump movement, what's uh, what's your next move? Uh, my, it would probably be a move to a foreign country. Because <laughs> I don't. I think the the only thing I you sort of have to decide what game you want to play. I don't think Trump is. I mean, you. I think what you would do is play help Cruz play the game at the state party conventions to um, win more delegates and sort of narrow the, and give Cruz an advantage on the second ballot. The second thing I would do is I would pick, um, I mean, we talked a little bit of this last week, is I would pick these districts in California where 
with just a little bit of field work because there are so few Republicans in places like my neighborhood here in San Francisco, but offer delegates at the same rate that a wholly Republican district does, that I would spend a lot of time over the next, you know, whatever it is, five weeks now, six weeks, trying to um, solidify either Kasich or Cruz, and I have to believe it's more likely Kasich than Cruz, yeah. in uh, in those districts, and and then hope and pray. You know, so it, yeah. like your best bet, if you have any at all, is to keep them under 1237, so you should play that string out. Um, and then... If you think this is the death of the party, I think your move is probably find a third-party candidate to run on the libertarian ballot. A, third, a Republican conservative that you believe in to run on the libertarian party ballot and give your congressional Republicans and Senate Republicans someone else to support for the presidency other than Trump. I think that makes sense. Uh, moving to the Democrats, is it over? Yes, and it's been <laughs> over for a long time. I know. I mean, so Hillary... Uh, won a resounding victory in New York. I think she, her final uh, margin beat the polls by a couple points. Um, Sanders people had, I don't think they predicted an outright win, but they needed one. They needed not just a win, but a win by a lot. Uh, the way it stands now, uh, to catch Hillary and pledge delegates, Bernie Sanders would need to win every remaining contest by 18 points. He has only done that twice, once in New Hampshire and once in Vermont. Um, and if he doesn't do that, then his only option is to convince a few hundred superdelegates that they should come back him, the candidate with fewer votes and fewer delegates. <laughs> so I right. just, it's, I mean, I know it's like, uh, it's, we're all corrupt members of the establishment, but, um, yeah. I just, I, I don't know how, I don't know how, how he go how he does this. I, I think you, you, I'd say a couple things on this one. New York was a resounding victory. It was an exclamation point. And the game has been over for a very long time. And so the, why hasn't the, you know, why are we treat it like it's still a race? One reason is the press, for pretty, for, I think for part good reasons, part not good reasons, has a bias towards keeping the race alive. I think the good yeah. reason is it's not, it is over, but it's not. It's like you're 30 games out of first place. You're not mathematically eliminated yet, but you're not making up 30 games in the last 50 games or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, it, you know, it's not, their, it's not for them to call it over. The second reason is they have a, it's more exciting television if it's still a race. The other reason, and, and the bigger reason, is that Hillary won't say it's over. And I think she also has good reasons to do that because, you know, she's, she's going to have to find a bridge to get these Sanders supporters on board. But, she, you know, she's still out there campaigning so she can fight for every vote with, and won't say it's over even though it's over. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I think he should keep running, right? Like, I th look, I agree. She she ran until June in two thousand and eight, yep. until the last contest. He should run until June. Um, there's no reason. There's no good reason for him to get out of the race. He's going to win some states again. He's probably going to win. He might win all the states in May uh, that have contests because those are very favorable states for him. He's going to keep building a crowd. He's going to keep building a movement. He's going to be able to get his message out, and he's earned that right to do that. I mean, I I think he should keep running. Yeah, I saw uh, Sanders' strategist, Ted Devine, on TV last night or the night before, saying that the reason he was going to stick it out to the end was you've had literally, as he said, literally millions of people who've contributed to the campaign, volunteered the campaign. I think they estimate now more than a million people have shown up at a Sanders event over the course of the campaign. Now, a lot of those people are in the states that have not yet voted, and they should have a right to vote for Bernie Sanders. And I totally support that. I think if we were in the exact same position that Sanders is now in 2008, 
we would have played it out to the end too because your people deserve the chance to do that. You know, I do you hear sort of two strains of thought from the Sanders campaign. One is we're going to look at the we're going to play out the string, we're going to do the best we can. We think um we still have a mathematical chance to do this and then we'll reassess at the end. And then the other strain is this insane strategy that we're going to flip superdelegates who we have been crapping on for a year to support the person who has fewer delegates and fewer popular vote. Um, and that's not going to happen. But I think we've both been in this position that when you losing a campaign is hard. It's really hard. And particularly if you ever, you know, people get into the race and they announce in a weird press conference outside the Capitol, like Bernie Sanders did to be message candidates. And then you get to sniff the Oval Office, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're the candidate or the staff. And you think we could actually, you're like, holy shit, we could do this. Like we could win. And we, then you're like, picture yourself in the White House or on Air Force One or all the, you know, putting all your policy plans in place. And then when that, then there will be a moment for almost all candidates where that turns out not to be the case. And it's hard to do that. And so there's like several steps for both ca- candidates, campaigns, and supporters, I think, to walk themselves down from where they are. And I yeah. think it could take a few weeks to do that. And I, I think in terms of Sanders, like some people, have, you know, I, I was like, they should, I, I said that they should both stop attacking each other. Um, now, look, I think that Sanders can, Sanders should go out and continue to point out differences between he and Hillary on policy positions. I don't think he should pull back on his message about, you know, the influence of money in politics. All I think he should do is there's a line he he said many months ago before it got fairly nasty, where he said uh, Hillary on her worst day is 100 times better than any Republican. You know, and I think he should probably start saying that more to just start reminding his own supporters that, you know, by the way, we have a lot of differences. I think I'm, I'd be a better president than her. But at the end of the day, here's here's what our ultimate goal is. I mean, that that's what I think his I think that's his sort of only role here. Hillary, I, I actually think as when you're the when you're the presumptive nominee or, or you're going to win this thing, it's actually more on you to try to unite the party and reach out to the other side supporters. And, and I think we did a lot of work doing that in 2008. But she she probably has quite a few things to do, don't you think? And, and I think it's going to be a little bit harder for her with Sanders than it was for us with Hillary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that our race was nastier, more heated longer, meaner. The Clinton supporters thought they were going to win from the very beginning, so losing was a, you know, a, a really sort of rough thing to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. But the difference here is that both Clinton and Obama were operating within a certain realm of that the Democratic Party and its institutions were legitimate. Maybe they need to be reformed in some way, but they were legitimate. The Sanders campaign, not entirely through the fault of the campaign itself, but partially, has come around to this view that the Democratic Party establishment writ large, I mean, like, in fairness, we ran against Clintonism. Like, yeah. like the contrast message was Clintonism. It was, a, it was a brand of politics that Barack Obama disagreed with that came from the 90s, and that was successful. We did not run against the Democratic Party. We were running against Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid or the DNC or anything like that. Sanders has run against the Democratic Party establishment. He has been a little back and forth. You know, it's never been very clear how he felt about President Obama. It's almost like put President Obama off to the side. Like he has implicit criticism, but never explicitly criticized it because President Obama's really effing popular with Democrats. But so now you're going to have, you know, just like if, you know, there's this frustration that among Sanders supporters that 
the DNC is corrupt, the superdelegate process is corrupt, you know, the establishment itself are a bunch of corporatist, you know, neoliberals, which is like a new thing I learned this cycle. Um, I know. I guess I, we're neoliberals, apparently. Yes. Yeah. If, if, you, if you point out delegate math, you are a neoliberal, corrupt person on the payroll of the Clinton campaign. And no one, on the, no one is paying I, us. I, I should so, say, though, I, this is one thing that I'm wondering. Yeah. I, a lot of our impressions and the impressions that you just talked about are from yep. Sanders supporters on Twitter. Yeah. And yeah. I just don't know what percentage of his supporters, you know, are I, I think that I think that Sanders himself and a good portion of his supporters are a little more like we were in 08 running against Clintonism and Clinton right. as the establishment than the whole entire infrastructure of the Democratic Party itself uh, is my guess. And then I think there's a there's another segment of them who are exactly what you just said, running against the whole establishment, the whole Democratic Party, think, thinks everyone's a sellout, thinks the AC, the, you know, the Affordable Care Act was a sellout, that it was written by lobbyists, all this kind of stuff. But I just I, I think there's a split in the in his supporters in that way and i think sanders is probably on the more helpful side of that split but then it's sort of incumbent upon him to try to bring the rest bring at least as many people as possible along with him yeah i violated one of my constant annoying admonitions to other people which is your twitter timeline is not a poll right so what people tweeted us is not representative of anything and matt iglesias at vox did a pretty smart piece a few weeks ago um that we'll, I'll, I'll try to find and tweet out um, after this podcast goes up about why it's a huge mistake to look in. The, in a, it's a mistake that he was basically saying the media makes all the time because they're very, you know they're all power Twitter users and they tweet about something and they get all these you know quote unquote Bernie Bros or hashtag I'm with her people and it's not a very good reflection of anything. The campaign itself I think has been a bit split. I thought the uh, accusing the DNC and the Hillary Victory Fund uh, of campaign finance violations for a pretty standard thing uh, was the sort of thing that feeds into that narrative. I agree. And, you know, there's going to be a moment where Bernie Sanders is going to be standing on the stage at a prime, you know, a prime time, you know, grade A speaking slot at the Democratic National Committee funded by the DNC and speaking. And he's got to be in a position where that. You know, they, they, that shouldn't be an awkward moment for him. Yeah. And and what do you think she should do? I think, I would say broadly, the Clinton campaign has some really, and Hillary Clinton herself, and I think Democratic politicians not named Barack Obama have some really hard questions to answer about their struggles with millennials. Yeah. Because a lot of these people that, the young people that Hillary has struggled with are people who never were so young that they came of age like in Obama's second term, right? So they're not, these are people whose attachment to the Democratic Party is pretty different than the people Obama brought into the process eight years ago. And that's like, that is worrisome. Like the, you know, forever Democratic majority that we all pine for depends entirely on young people that supported that cohort of young people supporting Obama, staying Democrats, not just their whole life, but the cohort that comes in behind them. So the 18 to 24 year old people are now, you know, mid 20s to mid 30s. But you need the next group of 18 to 34, 24 year olds to be Democrats, and that's a worrisome thing. And I think they have to look hard at that. Yeah, and I think it also, it, I think that the consultants and, and media people and all that kind of stuff have to change the way they think about how to attract millennials because, right, in this race, a 76 year old who's been in Congress for 26 years dominated the youth vote. 
right? And he he did not even have to use a snazzy new Snapchat filter to do so. Right. <laughs> so like he never he did not dab on Ellen. He did not dab on Ellen. Um, <laughs> our cardinal sin here at uh, Keeping It Sixteen Hundred. <laughs> right. um, no, and so like I think that all the things you're told to do as a candidate to reach out to millennials like that has to be rethought and i think there's right. much more of an emphasis on it and i don't think it's as ideological as people think either i think it's candidates who are comfortable in their own skin who speak like normal human beings who who don't sound like they're just regurgitating talking points like i i think there's i the word has been so overused now that it's awful but there's an authenticity uh factor here that i think is 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 Bernie has it, and I think you know, and Obama had it as well. Yeah, I th- so here would be some specific things I think the Hillary and her campaign should do to sort of to bring the to make it easier for Sanders supporters to come to uh, come over to her in the fall. Um, the first would be um, give Bernie Sanders a prime speaking spot at the convention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be an important thing to do. I think it'd be good for the party to do that. Um, you know, he has a message that resonates with a lot of people, not just our core voters on the economy, and having him do that in prime time would be good. Two, I think she has to, she has to, and I think, frankly, should commit to a reform, some process to reform how we pick our nominee. You know, whether that is um, whether superdelegates should be part of the process going forward. Uh, caucuses, closed primaries, delegate selection, all of that, uh, I think, is something yeah. that his, that Sanders supporters are upset about. I don't think they're – the Sanders supporters on Twitter um, are, are upset about it. I don't think it's entirely correct. I don't think that – I think they have pointed out what is a true flaw in the system. I don't think it is giving Hillary Clinton an advantage, but I think that that should be looked at. I mean, superdelegates are a dumb thing, and so they should look at that. And the third thing is Hillary Clinton should pick a proud – aggressive, progressive populist as her vice presidential nominee. Totally. Like, the, you know, you can already see... Don't go picking Tim Kaine. (laughs) Right. You know, it's just like, let's find the the old... And I like let's, Tim find, let's find the white male senator from a swing state. Right. Like, don't do that. No, right? and that, they're they're great people, but I just don't. I don't think that's yeah. what she needs. Like, yeah, I think it's. No, like I a, mean, obviously, she should pick Tom Perez because obviously. he was on our podcast. Um, and if anyone else wants to be on the VP shortlist, tweet at us. We will put you on the podcast. Um, I mean, Sherrod would be Sherrod Brown would be a great pick, but yep. um, his his wife has pretty much ruled that out. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I I would think this is going to sound crazy, and they're in. There are all kinds of reasons about, like, Senate appointments and stuff like that that would make some of these not work, but that's for someone else to figure out. But, one, I would think very hard about picking another woman, right? Yeah. Um, I think that, like, the conventionalism be cannot do that, must balance ticket, right? And I think, you know, if she picked Elizabeth Warren, all of her Bernie Sanders supporter problems would go away, right? Yeah. Um, could be Amy Klobuchar, could be, you know, it could be Kristen Gillibrand just because of uh, the Constitution. But, um, you know, like, like be... Pick a progressive and be bold about it, and I think that will help her with the Sanders sports and help her generally uh, as she heads into the fall. Uh, yes, so uh, Elizabeth Warren, you should uh, come on our podcast and, and talk about your uh, your possible uh, your possible selection as vice president. Um, okay, as promised, uh, we have Savannah Guthrie, the co-host of the Today Show. Uh, formerly of the White House Press Corps. Thank you so much for joining us. Fresh off a morning with the Trump family. 
Oh, that's right. It's such a pleasure to be both with both of you guys. I just can't. I, it's it's shocking to me that you're now both members of the media. The media Self-hating establishment. Members of the media. Exactly. <laughs> oh, did you say self-hating members? Okay. Absolutely. Well, you'll fit right in then. Well, this is important for us because um, our boss slash podfather, Bill Simmons, had on Sunday Today host Willie Geist a few weeks ago, and so we tried to one-up him by having Today Show host Savannah Guthrie. Boom. I love it. I love it. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want to get to all the politics of the week, but just start a little bit about you for uh, all of our listeners who... Uh, just to make them understand that you didn't just appear on the Today Show for the first time in your life. Um, <laughs> what uh, what actually made you choose journalism? Because I know uh, you also had a, a legal career and studied law and uh, could have easily gone down that path. What uh, what made you jump into the media? Well, I you know I started in news and started in in TV right out of college, I actually got my degree in print journalism. And it was my big dream to be a magazine writer, Time Magazine or Newsweek or something like that. But I happened to just get a job at a TV station, a local station um, behind the scenes. And through that, I was able to kind of put a tape together. And so one thing led to another. And my first journalism job out of school was at a local TV station. And then I was kind of on that track for a while, probably five or six years working in different local news markets. And then I got kind of tired of it and was sort of thinking that I I wanted to pursue the legal path, and I decided to go to law school. So I went to Georgetown Law, and I continued to work in news just part-time because I needed a part-time job, and I practiced a short time, and then I just – this is the shortened version of it, but basically I just felt like, you know, my dream job was to be a legal correspondent and – I felt like if I don't go for it right now, I'll never have the guts to do it again. So I left my legal job, and I had a clerkship lined up, and I told the judge, I'm sorry, I'm not going to come work for you this fall. I'm going to go pursue my career in television. And he was like, are you crazy, and (laughs) do you have a job offer? And I said, no, I don't, but I just feel like this is it. i got to go try. And so that's what I did, and I ended up going to court TV and covering trials around the country and then – Ultimately, NBC hired me as a general assignment reporter, and I um, was in Washington, and then eventually they put me on politics beat in the White House, which is when I ran into you people. Jokers. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was like 20 years all summed up in one That's minute. pretty good. That's pretty good. What, uh, what do you miss most about the uh, being in the White House press corps uh, besides the two of us? Getting yelled at by Dan Pfeiffer is always a joy that I, I I'm really. I'm pretty sure I never yelled at you. I think we I had a we had a Fact morning check. date every morning. So yes. Dana would call me at like six forty-five in the morning, right before seven seven thirty, whatever it was, right before she did her daily uh, morning Joe hit. So this is really the highlight of probably both of our careers was that moment every day. <laughs> it really was. Although, pro tip, don't call Dan before he's had his breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find him a much more pleasant conversation if he's had his breakfast already. Dan, both of you guys were working like 20 hours a day. I don't even know how you did it for all those years. But, yes, I – so, yeah, I used to call Dan all the time. He was on my list of people I called. And now, um, and, and Savannah, you also you also reached out to me once in a while and 
Look, I, I am known for being a, a poor leaker. I never really gave any reporters anything. I just say that because Dan's he on the really line. didn't. But there That's was exactly one, what a good leaker would say. There was there was <laughs> one reporter I always leaked to, which was Savannah Guthrie, when she called when you called and asked me what the soup of the day was going to be at the White House <laughs> at the White House mess, so that you could then announce it on your show with Chuck Todd. That was it. That's so I right. Would, I would like at eight in the morning. I would scurry away from my desk down to the White House mess, ask them what the soup was going to be, and then email Savannah. And that was my press interaction for most of uh, most of the White House. And it was actually quite valuable because, you know, Dan's flunkies in lower press would try to just give me the, the daily soup menu that was generic, where John went the extra mile to find what the actual soup du jour was. And this yeah. was kind of, this was some of the important work we all did together at the White House. But so I mean, if you ask me, what's my, what do I miss about the White House? I mean, you know, it's, it's totally grueling, all-consuming beat, but it's very exciting, and you get to travel the world, and you see things that you would never otherwise see, and, you know, on occasion, you get to raise your hand and ask a question of the leader of the free world, and, you know, that doesn't doesn't get much better than that. I did a little of my own reporting this morning, just so you know. The (laughs) White House soup of the day is Raising Cajun Gumbo. And that's the real wow. soup. That's not the fake soup, which is always like chicken noodle. Because we that's... never wanted the American people to know we were having like Thai coconut shrimp soup every day. <laughs> I know. That actually was true. There was some spin about the soup because they, <laughs> because they didn't want everyone to know how hoity-toity it was. You know, you got a chance to ask the president questions in press conferences. How do you plan for that moment? Does the White House press corps get together and choose well, how do you think about what your question would be, knowing that the president's going to ask 10 people a question and you could all end up asking the same question? You know that moment will be sort of picked apart by Twitter and the Internet? Yeah, it's incredibly stressful. First of all, the White House reporters do not get together at all because even though we're all the media writ large, you know, these are all competitive networks. So, you know, we all want to ask the best question and we don't compare notes. And part of the stress is you don't know, A, if you're going to be called on and B, in what order. If you're the first person called on, in some ways it's the easiest because the most pressing news of the day question, you know, is is yours to ask. If you're 10th on the list, a lot of times everything's been kind of chewed over. Maybe you had five questions on your list, but the other reporters already asked them, so you're kind of scrambling and stressing. I, you know, I think um, we always, you're trying to make news, which is another way of saying you want the president to say something new or at least in a different way than he's ever said it before. And you want to have a genuine interaction with the president. And if you, I, I always tried and wanted to ask a question that I hoped would be at least challenging or thought provoking because no reporter wants to ask a question that just elicits the same old talking points. Now, Dan, I know you want to just have the president <laughs> say the talking points, but this is where, you know, we're, we're sometimes at odds because we, you know, we want to have something that's a little bit different or at least a little more expressive. And um, all of the thinking that you do about the question is designed around that, how to elicit something new or revealing. How, how frustrating was Obama to you guys in uh, reciting talking points versus saying something <laughs> truly interesting? Well, you know, I mean, the president is extremely disciplined and he knows how not to make news. 
And he also, I think, would be the first to acknowledge that he's not a fire and brimstone type of speaker. I mean, he can be. I think we've all seen him in those settings. But by and large, he's a pretty even-tempered speaker. And it's funny. I used to, you know, we'd I'd have to write a, a package, a, a news piece for Nightly News every night, and they'd give me a minute 30. And, I mean, honestly, he— the president could say something like, the sun came out today, and it took 15 seconds for him to say it, and my piece would be half over, you know? So it was always <laughs> a big challenge to, you know, use a couple sound bites from the president and still pack in all the information I had to get in there. So, so he always was a little bit of a challenge that way. The biggest trick, if you get a chance to interview him, is that he also gives very long answers. And, you know, it's a tried-and-true technique of folks and Dan's job, you know, White House press offices, they don't give you unlimited time with the president. So one of the biggest challenges of interviewing any president, but particularly this president, is trying to cover a lot of ground with not much time with a with a president who gives long answers. We'll be cutting him well, off I'd when like he's to... on this podcast, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's only speed round. Yes. Yeah, I'd like to tell you that that was like this brilliant plan we had to just have the president filibuster you guys. But as we know from years of debate prep with him, this is not something that's easily controlled. Uh, you know, <laughs> Look what I have said. That, <laughs> <laughs> Look, what I have said is this. Yeah, let me go um, back to the beginning with the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You always knew that, uh, like, every whenever a reporter would ask a, que- a broad question about the Middle East, I would just, like, hang my head because it it's like it would be a three-century explanation of Middle Eastern history and clash of civilizations. And that's the trick about it. I mean, you can't. That's what's so when you're thinking about what questions to ask, one of the key things you have to think about is I cannot ask an open-ended question that's going to elicit, you know, a mini lecture because that's not going to cover any new ground. He's, and that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get something new or get him to say more about something than he said before. So that was always challenging. And when you are sitting across from him, you can see the person from the press office out of the corner of your eye glaring at you when you start going over your time. And the other thing that's hard about it is that, you know, especially with a president who's long-winded, and I think most of them are, you have to interrupt. And that's always a really tricky thing because, first of all, the when you sit down across from the president, there's just a natural intimidation factor. Do you respect the office and it's you, you feel that it's rude to interrupt? On the other hand, if you don't interrupt, you will get one question. And so, you know, that makes that always would propel me to jump in there, even when it's not my nature. So moving from so President Obama, very disciplined, you know, interviewee to this cycle, Donald Trump. Slightly different than that. What you've interviewed Obama and Trump. What what's it like to interview Trump, and how is it different from interviewing Obama? Well, it's night and day. Needless to say, um, you know, I mean, first of all, you have to give Trump his due. He does a lot of media interviews, and the media is always complaining about lack of access to candidates, as you well know. And you know, whatever anybody thinks about him, he has really been very accessible to all kinds of media. So, you know, we, we find ourselves doing an interview with him, you know, sometimes it feels like once a week, sometimes more often than that. Um, you know, I think that that he does a lot of phone interviews and those are particularly challenging because when you have, when you're sitting across from someone, you, you have all of these range of human cues 
it's easier to jump in. It's easier to interrupt or interject. It's easier to have an interaction. When it's on the phone, you know, he just kind of gives these long answers, and it's very hard to get a conversation going sometimes. Um, And, you know, I mean, sometimes it's great because he answers very directly, and sometimes it's frustrating because he doesn't answer the question at all. And... um, you know, I, that, it, with politicians of all kinds, you've run into various frustrations. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, I think for me, I'm always trying different approaches with him because we have a lot of opportunity to interview him. And I don't know that anybody's cracked the riddle. Yeah, I saw you guys trying this morning to kind of cut off some of his, like, stump speech-like answers around the town hall. Um, it's sort of amazing that he just he, he can filibuster really well and not just in a Barack Obama. Now I'm going to start from the now I'm going to give you like my Thomas Friedman. The world is flat routine about the economy, but more more like he will just go off in a completely different direction on something that you never asked about. Yeah, it's it's true. And then you you try to rein it back in. And then, but but what it's what's amazing is, and you can't really read Twitter after you do any political interview. But if I happen to see it, you know, people think, oh, why did you interrupt? You're so rude. Blah blah blah. And it's because you're just trying to get it back to the subject at hand. Um, but all politicians do that. I mean, don't you guys teach that when you're you know trying to prep your your person you're working for for whether it's a debate or anything? You say. Okay, they asked that, but you don't have to answer the question. Just get around to what you want to talk about. <laughs> That's what I assume. Um, I imagine that you're, going you're on. Correct. Uh, absolutely not. We say <laughs> you are answer correct. the question honestly, forthrightly, directly, because you love journalism. That's that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I don't. Something tells me it might be a little different than that. Blow off the question and um, and just go say whatever you want to say. But I don't know. It's it's interesting and challenging. Yeah, I was going to say, so Trump presents like a, a bit of a even more unique challenge than just the typical politician who kind of filibusters you. And like in, in a general election, if we get to a, a, a Trump-Clinton race or, or something like that, like how do you strike the balance between or how does the media, not just you particularly, but the media in general, strike the balance between treating both candidates fairly, but also continually highlighting some of the crazier shit that trump says i mean is that a challenge has that been a challenge for you guys to like okay we got to go tough on him because clearly he's going beyond the bounds of 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 what normal candidates say and do but at the same time you know you can't just be attacking him constantly so how do do you guys do yeah i mean i think that I, i i you know i can't speak for the whole media but i know that we try really hard to play it straight and if it seems like we are challenging him more often than not, sometimes it's because there's more material there because he is taking positions that in some cases are so unusual or unorthodox that you end up doing interviews that are just trying to get to the bottom of them or try to peel it back. Well, how do you suppose you'll, you know, deport 11 million undocumented immigrants or, you know, any number of his proposals you kind of have to drill down on. But I think our goal is always to just treat any candidate like they are a serious candidate for the presidential election. You know, just because you ask policy questions does not mean that you get answers. And, you know, there have been interviews that we've done that are real quick interviews on the Today Show that are all kind of horse race politics and they don't get very deep. And then there have been other times where we try to drill down on some 
policy issue. And, you know, sometimes we're more successful than other times. And that's probably true, actually, though, of any candidate, honestly. Um, just because he's more bombastic or flamboyant, you know, he's not that different in the sense that it's sometimes hard to get just a direct, straight answer. I actually thought he was very direct today. I mean, I asked him point blank, do you think we should raise taxes on the wealthy? And he said, yes. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> which is which is funny since his tax plan does not do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, again, you know, decades of Republican orthodoxy. But that's, you know, but, right, but right. he did give a very straight answer on that. I thought he gave a straight answer on the um, North Carolina law. He gave a straight answer on he wants to, you know, have the abortion plank of the Republican platform changed to incorporate the exceptions that he has. So, you know, um, anytime a politician just answers the question, journalists are happy. He, you know, he, he does. I mean, t- to his credit, he makes news, right? Like, you know, as you point out, you know, we spent a lot of time telling our bosses to go through these interviews and try to just survive, try not to make news, just use it as an opportunity to spout your message to whatever audience is watching it. And Trump does, you know, and that's, I think that is partly why he succeeded because he's constantly giving the media something to sort of chew over, you know, and saying some of those answers are actually fairly bold in the context of the Republican Party. A lot um, of them are, yeah. Yeah, and that. So, just stepping back away from Trump for a second, if you think about how two things, you know, if you think about how this election has been covered uh, thus far, you know, are there things that you think the media could do to sort of better serve uh, the public as they think about making their decision? And on the flip side of that, do you think there are things that the candidates in their campaign in their campaign staffs could do in terms of their media interaction to better serve the public in terms of getting their message out there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, you know, and we do them all the time, but I don't think these short little interviews are ultimately that helpful. Um, And I I can't say that we would stop doing them, but it would probably be more beneficial if we did a sit down somewhere, tape an interview, have a half hour with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or whomever and really get going on policy. And that's something that the media and the campaigns could do better. I mean, we would like to do those interviews. Um, The campaigns sometimes want to do those and sometimes don't. But in terms of what would actually serve the voters, I think that the voters would be better served if we had, you know, interviews that weren't live for three minutes. It's just hard to get anything done in that time. It's just really hard to, for either side to get a, a good question and uh, answer series going and for somebody to get into something that's complicated. So I think that's one thing. You know, if we made more of an effort to say, you know what, we'll give you 20 minutes of our airtime. If you'll give us 20 minutes to sit down and really flesh out some of these issues. That's good. Uh, moving to the lighter fluff portion of our interview, uh, what's uh, <laughs> what's been your biggest fangirl moment on the Today Show? Who have you met that you've been uh, most uh, impressed by? Oh my gosh, there's there are so many. I have to say, and working at the White House was fun, but being at the Today Show is 
got to be the greatest job because everybody comes through there. But, um, well, for one thing, we had Duran Duran give a concert, and <laughs> my secret inner 13-year-old girl was slipping out because I was the kid who had all the posters, and, you know, I loved John Taylor and Simon Le Bon, and so just the fact that we were hanging out and they knew my name was just amazing. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Coldplay's come on a few times and I love them. And then, um, you know, we have actors come through. Kevin Costner was just here and he was so nice to me. And I'm still always kind of amazed that they even would know who I am. You know, just like, wait, I know you, but how do you know me? So I, <laughs> I, there's lots of, there's lots of times like that, but you can't be a big dork in your job. You have to just pretend that Play you're playing cool. cool and Good. yeah, exactly. You always like, look oh, like yeah, that. This happens to me all the time. I try to just, you know, act normal and not like the 14 year old inner, inner child that I truly am on some of those stories. You don't take Snapchats with them. No, no, but there's been a few where I got to get a picture. Like Dolly Parton came on. I had to get a picture with her. I'm trying That's to think good. who else is. There's, there's just a mil- I mean, everybody, sooner or later, everyone comes through there. So, you know, Robert De Niro, we just did an interview with him last week. There's just, um, you, sooner or later, you meet all your idols. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Before we let you go and get back to your very busy and important life, um, <laughs> Kevin Costner. <laughs> um, you know, we wanted, though, this is, this is the most important question we're going to ask you. All right. Okay. Who is your favorite co-host, Matt Lauer, Chuck Todd, or Willie Geist? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is Sophie's choice. I, you know what? This line is getting faint. I, I look at the time. I've got to go. <laughs> oh, my God. You could have done our jobs. Great job, President Obama. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love all my co-hosts equally. I couldn't possibly, possibly say who was my favorite. They're all different. You know, they all bring a little something different. Um, that's, that's yes, I would right. never answer that. Okay. Uh, we didn't you, think so. It, yeah, we, it was worth a shot, though. But we are, but we are no telling way. we are telling Chuck that you said Matt. So um, <laughs> he already thinks that anyway. Every time Chuck comes on with me and Matt now, he's like, "Oh, you've moved on. You've moved on without me." <laughs> uh, uh, chuckles, as you used to call him. Chuckles, I still call him Chuckles. Look at Chuckles; he's all grown up on the Meet the Press. Yes. I know. Look at you. You've come so far from a uh, wildly successful midday NBC cable, MSNBC cable show. <laughs> and he, That's right. Don't forget it. By the way, we've been reprising it lately. We did it a couple of days. We we got the old Daily Rundown crew back together, complete you, with soup. John, you'll be happy to know. I was gonna say you guys I have can't come. Believe very- the biggest news here is that John was the White House Daily Soup deep throat all this time. I had uh, no it idea. Was, I've been Dan, to, was, we haven't plugged that leak for years. It was deep broth. We called him um, deep broth. Yes, that was yes. his actual name. <laughs> All right, Savannah. Well, now you, now he's free. he's um, the statute limitations period has, has run out, so you can't be mad at him, Dan. Yeah, no. I'm not anymore. We've, we've, we ran into some bigger leaks a few years later with a man named Edward Snowden that I stopped worrying about the soup thing. The soup yeah. thing. You're like, who told Savannah we were having foie gras soup today? <laughs> that was me. It was Fabs. Well, Savannah, you have moved on to the Today Show. Chuck's moved on to Meet the Press, and Dan and I are on a podcast. So, thank you. <laughs> See, so- every, it worked out for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, and uh, yeah, and thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. It was really fun. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another week of Keeping It 1600. Uh, you can find us on Channel 33, which is on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Be sure to watch After the Thrones, which premieres Monday on HBO Go, HBO Now. And thank you again. See everyone next week.